Well, hello and welcome to another episode of the New Ground Life and Leadership Podcast. If this is your first time listening to us, it's great to have you with us. For regular listeners, welcome back. Today I'm interviewing Mike Betts, who is a pastor and the leader of the Relational Mission Apostolic Sphere of Churches, part of New Frontiers. He has over 30 years of ministry experience and is the author of a couple of books, Relational Mission, A Way of Life and The Prayers of Many. Both books are available to purchase on Amazon and links to the books will be in the description of today's episode. Mike and I had a fascinating conversation about the post-pandemic revival that broke out in Lowestoft in 1921 off the back of course of World War I and the Spanish flu outbreak. It was inspiring to hear about what God did then but also really encouraging just to listen to Mike share his heart about the sort of people that God uses and partners with and also the privilege that we have as Christians that is prayer. I hope you enjoy it. Here's my conversation with Mike Betts. Enjoy. Oh, it's really good to be with you, Joe. Thank you so much for the invite. I'm looking forward to our conversation. And I have to say, I deliberately uh, chose my T-shirt oh, for you today. North Norfolk Digital T-shirt. <laughs> Actually, I was, I was on Radio Norfolk at the weekend and I, I was going to send to my friend Tom Shaw a little snippet to say, I am partridge. <laughs> No. Yeah, although um, my wife did correct me this morning when I proudly told her that I'm wearing this North Norfolk digital T-shirt because she, she said, of course, Lowestoft is not in Norfolk. It's a no, it's common not. mistake. Um, it is indeed a common mistake. We're, on the, we're, we're, just, um, we're in Suffolk, but the, the line for the border should enc- encompass Lowestoft, but it sort of jumps up. So I don't know if someone sneezed as they were drawing it or, or whether they looked, whoever was drawing it, didn't like Lowestoft and they were from Norfolk and they sort of moved the line up just to <laughs> keep us out. <laughs> yeah, well, I know there's, there's uh, you know, quite tense rivalry between the two counties. So. Well, there is, but being a Lowestoft man, I do support Norwich City, which is in Norfolk. So we, we do relate that way uh, personally, but the town... Shouldn't uh, you support Ipswich? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. Although, sadly, some people in the church here seem to do that, but... Oh, well, it's good Can't of you to helped. admit them I mean, into the church. Well, we, we did have to think about it. <laughs> uh, well, Mike, I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. We're going to be talking about uh, the revival that took place in Lowestoft in 1921, uh, coming off the back of the Spanish flu pandemic, um, for which it seems there are similarities with our situation 100 years ago. It was 100 years ago, almost to the day, um, 7th of March, I think it, it began yes. in Lowestoft in 1921. Um, we're recording this a few days later. Um, but before we get into talking about that, Mike, it's obviously been a very strange season in ministry. You've been in ministry for 30 years, as, we, as I mentioned, but uh, it's unlikely that you've probably had a year as unusual as the one we've just had. Um, why don't you just tell us something either that you've learned either about yourself or ministry in the past six months? Uh, gosh, it's, it's, a diff- it's, a, it's a difficult question because I, I think... Uh, it's not like I would feel I've learned something that I didn't know before, but perhaps some things that are true have become more prominent and more, um, more brought to my attention in, in the last six months uh, and, and are you know, helpful things to try and live by. I, I suppose one would be um, the need for utter dependence on God and in some ways utter surrender to him 
I, I think we've all been affected by the sense of the frailty of life and whether you're a Christian or whether you're not a Christian, we've all been affected by the fact that, you know, our life is very frail. Uh, we're very vulnerable. Uh, life is very short. Uh, and I think that's a, that's a timely reminder to people who live in the West because we tend to think we can just solve everything and medicine solves everything. Well, it doesn't. Uh, and, and the more I'm working in other parts of the world that where we don't tend to, they don't tend to have some of the sort of, I don't know, benefits of developed world uh, infrastructure. <clears throat> I think we're just coming to realize the reality. And so dependency on God, I think, has been something that's just come home to me. Um, not only you know be able to give thanks for every day be you know not think too much about the future just trust god for for our lives throwing you back on dependency on him and then also just trying then in ministry to to really not have too much of a plan because whatever plans you make at the moment they're just so vulnerable to you know the, the ebbs and flows of pandemic which nobody seems to be able to second guess you know we just don't know do we so mm. it's a little bit like being i suppose um <clears throat> like traveling through the wilderness uh the exodus isn't it? so you have to watch the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night just constantly keep attentive where's god is god moving where's he going what's he saying i think that kind of that kind of perspective has come very very strongly to me for daily life as well as for for ministry thinking right lord what do you say um so i think that's that's probably been something that's you know it's not new uh, we should be living like that all the time shouldn't we but i think it just fresh heightened awareness Mm. through the through the months yeah, we're not used to it because we're so used to being able to plan and predict everything aren't we yes. we suddenly realize that the world isn't a playground that we can just do what we want with you know exactly. we are tiny tiny um yeah. people and creatures in a world with bigger forces than us yeah yeah it's made me think also about you know i suppose a similarity with the dynamic of the exodus in the new testament is when jesus sent out the 12 and sent out the 72 and he said you know don't take an extra bag or an extra tunic or shoes or don't take anything with you just go and and where where your peace rests where there's a receptivity to you uh, where they welcome you and they welcome your message and there's a sort of a relational dynamic connection somehow what you need will be provided there so it's almost like we tend to think of a five-year plan a 10-year plan sort of perhaps slightly more business model methods coming into the church but interesting god in the exodus uh, jesus with the disciples um seem to adopt a very very different style to that and, and i think we can perhaps learn afresh from from those models of um take nothing for the journey now i don't think that means we just don't have an idea of what we're doing because he did say go to this village this, you know there was a little bit there was a plan judea samaria ends of the earth there was an overall plan but not to lock it down too much uh just to keep flexible travel light mm. uh, not have a great big encumbrance of organizational baggage that means mm. if you want to change direction you have to wait five years before you can do it i i, I think i think those days perhaps i've gone for a season well 
as we come to talk about the revival in Lowestoft, I know you've made a series of short videos about um, some of the principles perhaps that we can learn from the revival. One of the things you talked about was spontaneity and that willingness to respond and move at the slightest you know, hint of what the Holy Spirit might be saying, which uh, I guess ties in a lot to what you've just said there as well. Um, yeah, let's, uh, Mark, let's, um, let's come to talk about the revival. Uh, and you can unpack some more of that theme of spontaneity and responding to what the Spirit is saying. Uh, first of all, for those of us who aren't familiar at all with anything that, that happened in Lowestoft, would you mind just setting the scene for us back in 1921 and what God did? Sure. I mean, I won't go into massive historical detail. I, I can signpost you to a very good set of blogs. Um, a good friend of mine, David Pike, who's uh, who actually you know, co-laboured with me in Lowestoft for many years, helped found a church here, but you know, lives in Cardiff. He's a revival historian now, and he's got a, a blog, a series of blog posts on Well Digger. That's his, that's his site. And he's just done two uh, episodes on the Lowestoft revival in very, very considerable detail, brilliantly researched. So I'd really recommend that. And also, uh, as another sort of book plug, although it's out of print at the moment, it can still be found on the internet. There's uh, a forgotten revival <clears throat> which is about the last of revival written by Stanley Griffin. Uh, he's he's gone to glory now, bless him. Uh, he was a leader here in in uh, Lowestoft, but his uh, widow Joy gave me access to all of the archive material that he used to research for that book, wow. which was a tremendous privilege to be able to mm. read through all of that. So <clears throat> that that said, in terms of further detail for people who want to dig in a bit more. The, the background was Lowestoft is um, on the east coast. It's the most easterly part of the UK. You have to travel to get to it. You don't pass through it. And so we're right on the edge. Uh, traditionally and historically at that time, a hundred years ago, it was a very thriving herring fishing port. It was a very popular um, destination or it became very popular later on in terms of a seaside destination, but particularly it was associated with herring fishing and um, <clears throat> thousands of uh, fishermen and uh, big industry would be involved as the herring season got underway. And uh, <clears throat> as you were alluding to, 1918, there was the Spanish flu pandemic. And I think there were around about four big waves of the, the Spanish flu hit the UK something like around 300,000 people died in the UK from it, um, upwards of 50 million globally. It was massively devastating. And then obviously you've got the Great War, the First mm. World War, which had preceded that. So when you get to 1921, the town here was not only devastated from the war, um, being most easterly point, there was often bombardment here from zeppelins and all sorts of things and gunboats. So there was a lot of, a lot of fear, a lot of um, shock, trauma. Um, the Spanish flu then had come on the back of that and caused you know a lot of death across the country. And into that context, um, the local Baptist church, London Road Baptist Church, Hugh Ferguson had been organizing prayer meetings for some time, praying for revival, praying for God to move, um, fairly regular sort of uh, prayer meetings. And he felt 
he wanted to find someone to come and lead a week-long convention just to talk about these things. And so he, the name Douglas Brown was put to him. And Douglas Brown was a Baptist minister from Balham in London. Cut a long story short, he invited Douglas Brown up for that week, <clears throat> which began uh, on the uh, 7th of March. And from the beginning, um, there was a rather remarkable move of God. Many people started to get converted. Um, the, the week passed very quickly and they realized, gosh, we, we can't stop this now. So over the course of the rest of the year, really, Douglas Brown was coming and going backwards and forwards to Lowestoft. And in the meantime, other preachers, such as a guy called Jock Troop, good old Scottish name there, he was involved in neighboring Great Yarmouth, about 10 miles away, where revival spread to. Uh, and then there was other, you know, lay preachers and local preachers who just kept the kept the the whole thing, uh, sort of stewarding what God was doing uh, in between visits from Douglas Brown. And it then began to spread to, as I said, to Great Yarmouth, to Norwich, to Ipswich, to Cambridge. Uh, it went then up the North Sea to the northeast of Scotland as the herring went up uh, and down. Then obviously the fishermen would come and go. Mm. Uh, so it was it was uh, spreading along that kind of line, and then eventually it jumped over into Ulster through relational connections there. And what we found, um, and David Pike's blog particularly draws this out, is that there were many many ripples, individuals who were impacted, who then in their ministry had tremendous fruitfulness uh, that wasn't immediately connected with that revival, but their lives were radically impacted at that point. And from that, <clears throat> many connected things we've discovered happened that weren't immediately apparent. So it was a, a surprising deluge of the presence of God that, that saw the church initially revived and then many, many people um, come to Christ. Hmm. We talk about it moving, the the revival moving. It seems to. Uh, what exactly are we talking about when we when, when you use language like that? Because are we are we talking about just almost like electricity of power jumping from one place to another. I don't think it's like that. It seems to be more linked to is it just church meetings that suddenly people find, gosh, there's an unusual level of engagement and power here. What's the hmm. help us understand what it means for revivals to move? Well, <clears throat> I think every account you read of people who were in revival, they struggle for voc vocabulary to describe it because it's the something of the transcendence, the otherness of God invades the natural realm that we live in. And whilst we're <clears throat> all living in the presence of God, those who know the Lord, we're, we're all filled with his spirit. We all have the Holy Spirit living within us. I think it's a bit, I've described it a bit like when you, if you look at the sun in the sky, you can, you can see its qualities, its heat, you feel its benefit, etc. If you put a magnifying glass up to it, then it's the same qualities, but the intensification of the reality mm. is magnified in, in an intensity that is unusual. And I think that's how I find a sort of a visual way of describing it. So, the presence of God would be such in those times that, uh, I mean, I spoke to people who witnessed this, you know, years ago. Um, 
people would be walking across the, the, the bridge in the town, that the, the river separates the two halves of the town, people would be walking across the bridge there. And uh, the power of the Holy Spirit would just come upon them and they'd be clinging onto the railings of the bridge, just weeping yeah. under the awareness of they need a saviour and, and the, the, the sinfulness and the fact they needed to just get right with God. You would have stories of, of trawlers, herring fishing trawlers being out at sea. And as they came nearer to the port, they almost sailed through uh, a, like an invisible curtain of God's presence. And people were getting converted out at sea, not in meetings, not even having heard the gospel. The, the power of God was falling on them. And they were just kneeling on the deck of ships, crying out to God, mm. coming to Christ. And then you know, obviously joining in with meetings when they got on shore. So they were extraordinary. Uh, it was like the whole town was saturated with a sense of God's presence. So the atmosphere around any activity of, in the town was permeated with the weight of God's presence. It was almost like a tangible heaviness in, in a, or a weight, not heavy as in, you know, uncomfortable this this you know not sort of weight of um depression but weight of glory uh and i think then th this manifestation seemed to accompany the preaching the singing the prayer meetings remarkable prayer meetings um extraordinary things and then it as the the preachers douglas brown in particular as he went to different places as he was invited to different places the whole thing just started up again uh, he seemed to carry it with him hmm. in quite an unusual way and he was a very straightforward guy he wasn't it wasn't his charisma he was he was a good preacher uh, but uh, and, and uh, you could know, read some of his sermons word for word because that's how they sort of reported on things in those days hmm. but um he would be very straightforward preacher down the line simple gospel presentation but what accompanied his preaching was was quite it was not human it was you know god's visitation mm. there's there seems to be in in stories about revival there does seem to be uh, not an emphasis but a, a recognition that a, a man or a woman a, an individual is is quite instrumental in what god does um and so and yet what you're describing is pe people on on fishing boats or out on bridges being uh, met by the presence of God isn't linked to them hearing a sermon directly. So we seem to be in an age, I think, where we're we're very fascinated again with the personality and the, the dynamic, charismatic preachers um, and TV personalities and celebrities generally. Um, and so help us to understand the, the dynamic between someone who's really gifted and we could just go, oh, he's obviously, a, like you said, a really gifted preacher and you know something really amazing happened you had to be there to hear it but then it seems to go beyond just the hearing of his preached words seems to be some kind of partnership it seems why does god use people why why, why does he require a preacher why does the revival not just break out without someone instigating it with a sermon um have you got any thoughts on that well i think i think god does use men and women he he's he he does work through people that is we are his um ambassadors so whenever God has purposes, he will find a man, he'll find a woman, he'll find a, a group, uh, he, will, he will look for people. But I think it's more to do with the kind of people that he, he can use. And, and when you dig into the story 
of Douglas Brown, you find that four months before he received the invite to come up to Lowestoft, he had this sort of wrestling time with God. He was a very successful, you know, successful in terms of ministry and his church. It was towards a thousand people strong. In 15 years, he'd never had a Sunday when someone hadn't come to Christ in 15 mm. years. Wow. This was a very thriving church. But God put his hand on him and, and wanted him to step down from leading that church. And he didn't want to step down because he loved it. He loved what was happening. And, and also, he didn't feel qualified or capable of doing what God wanted him to do, which was to go become an itinerant missioner, just basically going where God called him to go. And he wrestled for four months with deep pain and tears and it was a it was a big big deal for him, and it's uh, the story of it is catalogued in Stanley Griffin's book, and it's a powerful. I think I've actually read it on um, when we did our online service. I read the account, um, and uh, which you can find on the Lowestoft Community Church YouTube channel if people want to listen to that little plug there. Um, <laughs> but what happened was when he then did write his letter of resignation, which he did, and he said tears were on the paper. Uh, the week after he'd done that, Hugh Ferguson visited him and asked, would you come to Lowenstoft? He had been in bed for 11 days with the flu, with the Spanish flu that had killed so many other people. And he arrived at Lowenstoft in a very weakened state. So you've got a man who's wrestled with God, who's mm. surrendered to God, who sacrificed at the height of his you know, ministry, perhaps credentials when you think you know you're at the height of your, your zenith of your gifting mm. he'd step down he'd come in a weakened state just to serve out of obedience now you see pe people like that god can entrust with great moves and i think what we're observing today sadly is often personality platform charisma um can produce uh entertainment it can produce um uh, through natural charisma a a, a kind of a an effect mm. uh, on people and in people and and you know praise god for gifted communicators but often we're looking f at the person and it's the person's strength of character or strength of gift that that, that is shining through whereas most of the people, even through the even through the Bible, you look at most of the people God used. You know, your Gideons, your Abrahams, your Moses, your you know, your Peters. Your, they all had objections as to why God had got the wrong person. <laughs> you know, there, there, there's a natural. Um, are you serious? You know. Yeah. Uh, so I think there's something that doesn't mean we should be all Uriah Heap and say, "Oh, we're useless." It's not saying that. It's the difference between self pity and surrender very different thing surrender is is i lay down all that i've got that's of myself for god to use whereas self-pity is god can't use me i can't use me nobody i'm useless that's 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 not the, that's not the attitude so i think there's something about that and and sadly as we've seen you know many high profile leaders fall in ministry and went yeah, quite gosh. staggeringly over the last couple of years it's, it's deeply saddening to my heart to watch it my conclusion from it all is that we all all of us as christians and all of us in ministry need to be very very aware of 
our need of a savior constantly. We are not safe without a shepherd. Uh, and I think if we live attentive to that, surrendered to that, dependent on, on that, then God can use us. Mm. Whoever we are, wherever we're from, we don't have to be multi-gifted. We just have to be surrendered. Mm, I'm reading um, Mike Reeves's new book on fear and trembling before God. And there's a, a lot in the Bible about how God looks for people who tremble before him. Yeah. And not in the sense of being terrified of him, but in the sense of, like you said, utter surrender. Like, I'm in awe of you. My life yes. is yours. I'll do whatever you want. Yes. And I remember listening to you read out um, Douglas Brown's kind of re inner turmoil as he um as he sought to go so i mean the timing of that's remarkable that months before he got this first call so he was already sensing a call to some level of itinerant ministry before he had the invitation uh, and that's always remarkable how you yeah. see you get glimpses behind the curtain sometimes of god weaving a narrative and um and having a, an overarching plan and so in god's economy you could i guess you could never answer this question but why lower stuffed mm. <laughs> i mean you i guess you've mentioned it, it battered and it was you know hit hard by the war and by the pandemic and the pandemic but but you've also said before there's something about the type of places that god seems to visit that almost seems to mirror the type of people that god seems to use can you say something about that well that's i've not heard it put that way before but i think that i think that's probably true i mean Lowestoft is, I can remember for many years, if I'm honest, almost feeling slightly apologetic about where I came from. If I was in a room full of, you know, people from very influential places or whatever, you can feel quite intimidated that you say, well, I'm from Lowestoft. And they sort of look at you and say, well, where's that? <laughs> you know, why are you there? Why, why have you stayed there? That's not very good for your, for your career path. You know? <laughs> that's, that's just where I was born. And God hasn't, told, God hasn't told me to move. So, you know, um, deal with it. Uh, so it's, but it, it's, it can feel a little, I suppose that the atmosphere can, can feel, uh, we can allow our wor worlds, the world's way of thinking to invade even Christian things. Well, what's strategic? Well, Lowestoft is not strategic, right? It isn't. It's a fishing town. Well, it isn't even a fishing town now. It's a coastal town that's seen better days, <laughs> as you, as you would know from the south coast of you know where you are. There, there, there were there were coastal towns that had a heyday, but now don't really have a, a reason for existence. But they they are still there, and, and Lowestoft is is like that. Now, if I was going to sell it and market it, I would talk about it as a thin place because that's the trendy term now. Thin places, betwixt and between borders, you know where sky meets land and uh, and sea meets. Sure, you know, hill meets sky. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of sort of spirituality now about thin places. So it depends. You can either call it a thin place and make it trendy, or you can say it's a coastal town that's seen better days. I'll leave you to choose. So <laughs> I'm interested in that that phraseology there, thin place. Um, is is it known as a place that is quite spiritually open and spiritually influenced easily by mm. Christian or other? Well, it certainly had a remarkable heritage. I mean, Wesley visited here 16, 17 times and, and he came back regularly because he loved the spiritual dynamics that he found here. Spurgeon came uh, here uh, and other uh, preachers associated with that period and had meetings of over 6,000 people in a local sort of the, the transport depot. It was the only building big enough in the town. And at that time, um, it, 
some meetings they had drew up to a quarter of the population of the town. So it, was, it has been visited again and again and again in, in uh, sort of historical uh, terms, obviously maybe even before then, but we haven't got historical records of that. So there's, there's something in the, in the history of the place that seems to have repeatedly attracted visitation from God and also has got threads out from it, as I say, touching the lives of many others. I think, um, you know, great men of God like, like David Pitchers, you know, uh, surely would have. His father was, uh, I believe, a chaplain uh, in Ipswich. He came, uh, or we think he came to some of the revival meetings in, the in that time and was deeply impacted mm. in the 1921 revival. And then if you trace then sort of then the knock-on effects into the lives of many other people that then his ministry has affected, you, you can see how it doesn't take much of a stone dropped in a pond for circles of influence. Uh, Douglas Brown himself went up to Keswick Convention, spoke about the revival. There began to be something of a move there. I think there was a, a little bit of nervousness and uncertainty about it. So it, it, it didn't progress too far in that context. But I, I think the point is, it might start in an obscure place as Jesus in Nazareth, but it then spreads from the margins to the to the cities and to the places of, of greater influence. That seems to be the way often God works, from the margins to the big centres of influence. Jesus himself adopted that as his own strategy. Um, yeah, so that's just an observation. That's no, really helpful. I'm really helpful for people who, who aren't living in major urban influencing centres to embrace the call that God's put on their life. That you think you're right. We are in danger of falling prey to the, the, the secular narrative, perhaps, that to be of real importance, you've got to be in the, the hub, the centres, the cities. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, to be honest, in the world we're living in now, the internet, well, I can reach the world from my study. I don't, it doesn't matter where I am. It makes no difference to me at all where I am physically located. I mean, your study looks a little bit like Joe Wicks's room because you've got um, a, a, a stepper in the background as well. So yeah, you know. I, if only I had his fitness. But uh, yeah, it, you it, should I, think about that. Maybe preaching while doing a workout session. You never know; it could catch on. It could catch on. Yeah. Um, talk to us about the. Um, to, do you have any sense of um, the numbers of people that were impacted in Lowestoft directly? The size of the town and the kind of proportional impact that the revival had on the town. Um, it's difficult to be too definitive about that. I mean, there was certainly, uh, it would be in the thousands of, of people who were, who were impacted. Um, and churches were ongoingly changed as a result. So um, I think there were probably many more ripples that went out into, as I say, the surrounding other mm. towns, cities in East Anglia and through individuals being impacted, that when you add it all together, it was very substantial. But in the locality, I would say um, there's certainly, it would certainly be in the thousands of people who were, who were touched uh, in different ways, either Christians revived or people who came to Christ um, who, who didn't know him. Mm. But it's difficult to put an exact number on it. And obviously the definition of revival according to Martin Lloyd-Jones, which I, I think is a very good definition. He's saying that revival primarily is something that happens to the church. And as a result of that, 
then there is an impact in the wider community because he says you you can't revive something that's never been alive and i think that's that's a good point so mm. There have been other moves of God that have been evangelistic campaigns, Billy Graham or the Jeffries brothers in the 30s or various other things in Liverpool that happened in the 30s that were more evangelistic campaigns rather than revivals that touched the church. So I don't think the actual numerical impact of the last of revival would compare to some of the other major things, the Billy Graham things that were national. But it is the sovereignty of the move of God that is that, that it brings the definition of revival. That that um, that obviously we have seen national revivals before, haven't we? Uh, yeah. That lower stuff was a localized East Anglian thing. And I'm interested in thinking about the the longer term impact of a moment like a revival because we, mm. you know, we're often praying for revival. But it's almost like um, praying to catch a big fish. Like once you've got it, <laughs> you're going to have to know what to do with it, um, how to get it back to shore and cut it up, etc. Uh, a friend of mine, John Woods, who um, a mutual friend of ours, he said that in the 60s in Lowestoft, there was um, 57 Anglican churches alone. Um, does that ring a bell, that kind of number? Yeah, I mean, there are an extraordinary number of, uh, of churches in Lowestoft historically. Uh, not all of them are still going. But yeah, it has been historically a very um, religious place, if you put it like that. Yeah. And is that in, in is that part of the impact, the longer term impact of something like the revival? There's so many more churches sprung up. Uh, I think many of them were there before the revival, so they would be a testimony to previous moves. And uh, it's interesting if you go a little bit further down the coast from us to um, the River Old at Snape. There's a church there. Um, St. Botolph's, and uh, I think he actually was the first, this is in AD something or other, he sailed up the river from Scandinavia somewhere and established an apostolic base on that river and took the gospel into East Anglia. Um, and there's all sort of storyboards about the, the facts and the figures and the details. So right back from very, very early centuries, uh, this part of the UK has been a, a place of spiritual in that's been spiritually impacted. Mm. Um, but we need another move of God today. I mean, nationally we do. I mean, our town is the same as many others. There's about 70,000 in our town, now, perhaps a hundred thousand in the wider area. If you add on villages and things, but um, desperately need to see another, another visitation of God, which may not look like the first one, or the last one, but definitely no. needs to to happen. Because there are, I mean, I listen to someone like Pete Gregg, who's very encouraging in um, just giving stats on the numbers of people that seem to be coming to Christ across the globe and generally in prayer meetings, the rise of prayer globally. seems to. He, I think the language I've heard him use is about a gentle rain revival that we seem to be living in at the moment. Is that something you're, you've heard of? What do you, how do you feel about the idea of a, a gentle rain where we're kind of all experiencing some level of um, God adding great numbers to the church, but we don't necessarily see it as a deluge like a, in one location like mm. perhaps we had in the 20s? What are your reflections on that? Well, I, I personally, I would say that there are places in the world where the tide is in. So high water marks around the global south and the global east, Africa, South America, the Middle East. Um, I have numbers of 
places I'm connected with, particularly in the Middle East and in Africa, where where the high there is a high watermark of of um, God's activity. I would personally say in the West, the tide is out, uh, and I think we have to be honest about that and say um, it's not that there aren't some very good things happening, but it's a bit like, I mean, I've just finished writing a book called Everyone a Witness. And uh, in the first chapter of that, I, the point I make is that, you know, I'm 59 now. And every year of my life in the West, the tide has gone out further and further and further. I've never lived in a year yet where I could say that overall in the UK or in mainland of Europe, the tide has turned. Now, there are rock pools. And I use the image of rock pools in the book, saying that there are rock pools of abundant life where you can look at what God's doing in a certain place and you think, wow, this is incredible. Mm. But it's very different to the tide coming in and covering the whole coast. Uh, and and so I, I, I tend to think that we are, I think a reality needs to dawn on us that we need a move of God. Because if we, don't, if we think this is it, well, then we're not going to be motivated to pray. This is not it. This is sub sub biblical experience. I've lived in it every year of my life, uh, and praise God for the times when we get you know little surges of rock pool blessing, and many people who say, "Well, our church has grown so fast. We've seen so many people saved." Blah, blah, you know all these sorts of things. Wonderful, absolutely wonderful, but they're rock pools. It's not revival, mm. and, and I think we we need to be hungry for more. I, I want more than that. I think God wants more than that. Um, and I, but I, I, I'm in uh, total agreement with Pete concerning prayer. I mean, he even very kindly wrote the foreword to my book on prayer, um, which is about corporate prayer. And, and I think we have seen and are seeing the beginnings, just the beginnings of a cultural change in prayer. And I think it's changing the culture as regards prayer and changing the culture in church as regards witness I think are the two big things we've got to go for. They're like what I call two giants that need to awake. Hmm. And when those giants awake, then I think the church will find herself starting to come out of her slumber. Uh, those are the two things where if you look at other parts of the world, corporate prayer and sharing of the gospel, those seem to be the two big uh, giants that are fueling um, hmm. moves of God in other parts of the world. Well, what, uh, let's stay with that because that's really um, interesting. And what is it then? So I think we're seeing, like you said, a, a surge in interest, appetite for prayer. What do you think it looks like and what do you think is needed for a surge in interest or appetite, for want of a better phrase, in witnessing and sharing the gospel? Where are, we, where are we lacking? What's holding us back in that, do you think? Well, I think one precedes the other. Um, and even in the New Testament, you know, Jesus said, wait until you receive initially. Then in Acts 4, you know, when they encountered a little bit of hostility, difficulty, what did they do? They gathered, they raised their voices in prayer. Mm. Holy Spirit fell on them again, emboldened them for witness. So prayer and witness go together. If, if we don't link the two, then our prayers in our minds become an end in themselves which they never are. Prayer is a tool to get something. It's not an end in itself. If we think, oh, great, we've got a great prayer meeting, I want to think, well, what did you ask for? Mm. What you got? 
well, we just enjoyed prayer. Well, that's not what it is. It's a tool. It's, it's like a lever to prise the lid off something to get at what you need. It's about asking. It's quite a, it's a violent thing. Uh, it's, it's not a, uh, I mean, I've heard people say, well, actually, we become a prayer. Well, all right. We can live a living sacrifice. Like, yeah, I get that. But that is what prayer is. It's a punch. It's a come on. We want this. Uh, it, it's something about God wanting his people to engage with him in faith so they won't take no for an answer. He loves it. He loves that tug of war. He loves that. It's not that he's reluctant, but he just wants to hold on a bit so that we actually really believe him. He's looking for faith. He's looking for, well, do you really, are you really convinced? I want to do this and I can do it. Are you really convinced? He's looking to draw something out of us that makes us grow, makes us mature into those who really know the God that we, that we love. Mm. So prayer is a means to an end. And the end is witness. It's sharing the gospel. It, it, that, that is the fundamental purpose of the church being on the earth today. It's to tell other people about Jesus. So our prayers should fuel our witness. So witness is not about finding the latest technique. I mean, praise God for the amazing movements through things like alpha and you know healing on the streets or you know treasure hunting or uh, christianity explored wonderful things seeing many people saved praise god for all of that but i think we need a culture shift of every one a witness so whether through words works or wonders every single one of us is empowered to go on that journey whereby we tell people our story we demonstrate the heart of god to them through acts of kindness and we're prepared to move in the supernatural praying for people prophesying over them demonstrating the supernatural manifest presence of god uh, as a as a a means of witness as well when all of that is starting to happen through the whole church uh, alongside corporate prayer i think we are inevitably on the tipping point of something that has to happen because that's what god's looking for Hmm. wow um this other uh, thought that occurs to me uh, as you're as you're speaking is um when we were talking about revival you talked about the difficulty sometimes to find the language to describe what god seems to do his, his manifest presence that then seems to have a, such a massive knock-on effect in the in the surrounding areas where things places become thin for one of a better term as we've said well, I guess what you, you're saying there is that in prayer, we're to encounter the presence of God in, in a similar dynamic that's such that it propels us and motivates and provokes a hunger in us for more of him, but also to be able to witness about him. And I, I suppose my question is, if if the revival dynamic is a sovereign move of God, how is it? How, how can we then approach the need for more witnesses without the same mindset that oh, this is a sovereign move of God? He needs to move me to go and do this, which seems to kind of be a cop out. Um, help me to understand that. Well, yeah, this, I mean, if I can give an illustration from the 1921 revival, it might help. So Douglas Brown arrives and an unexpected surge of God's activity takes place, a sovereign move. As a result of that, um, one of the accounts I've got of um, a prayer meeting that uh, was prayer meetings that were happening in Great Yarmouth uh, during that time, they, they had they had a week 
uh, of of prayer, and there was a blizzard at the time, so it was a it was it was not conducive to lots of people turning up. But every morning, they had an hours long prayer meeting. There was no preaching, there was no singing. There was it was just intercession. And what would happen is uh, people would come in and give prayer requests and they would the prayer requests would come in at about 200 a day and it would be often prayers for relations backsliders family husbands wives neighbors colleagues people who they wanted to see saved and they would write them down in a book literally write their names down people would then pray for that that, that, that whatever the request was sometimes one person sometimes four people at once it would just be nobody prayed for more than a minute so there was no long prayers. It was no longer than a minute. And they would just do it like a transaction. Mm. As that prayer meeting, as those prayer meetings continued, um, names would be mentioned from the book that had been prayed for later in the week. And someone would shout out, glory, that's been answered. And mm. they would tick, that person's come to Christ. This person's come to Christ. This person's come to Christ. And so more names would then be added. They just, it was just like a machine. And so I think that demonstrates that we need, even when God is moving in revival power, we need to stoke the fires. There's this beautiful partnership of God unexpectedly and sovereignly moving, and yet us being quite diligent and, and um, warlike even in our fueling of the fires of what god is doing so we're not just sitting back saying well we're just watching what god does no we're, we're saying right if god's moving we'll have more more because there's always more mm. so i think it is for partnership um mm. yeah that's really helpful thank you uh well let's you, you touched on it earlier when you're talking about douglas brown's heart attitude what are some other things then that um we can perhaps learn from Douglas Brown and the revival about the kind of people that God's looking to partner with in the world. Uh, we've mentioned, obviously, a, a willingness and an openness to surrender and respond to God, uh, a softness of heart, perhaps. Um, what other things come to mind as I ask that question? Well, I suppose just to finish off the comments on prayer, I would say that we, we I think local churches and um well, all Christians, it's a culture. But if I just, let's just stick with local churches for now. One of the reasons we started the whole Enough initiative, which is, you know, prayers of many sort of prayer meeting thing, we started across the Relational Mission family of churches, which has grown far beyond that now. One of the reasons we started with that, and I said at the time, this is the most important thing we are doing across the family of churches. There's nothing else more important. And I believe that, I still believe that, uh, even though it's sort of moving on into different phases a bit now. Uh, I think if a local church makes corporate prayer the engine room, not a department, then we will see a shift. Now, what I mean by an engine room is that it becomes a culture. So before we do anything, we pray. As we're doing something, we pray. When we're thinking about what to do, we pray. As we're doing it, after we've done it, we're praying. There is a natural, there is a natural ethos that the whole church just thinks, well, we, we pray. That's what we do. That, that's, that's where we start. We start with prayer. We fuel it with prayer. We give thanks and seal it with prayer. Now, that's a culture. That's not an event. 
And I think with the revival, you notice that prayer became a culture. It became a driving force that everybody was um, attentive to. You didn't have to ask people, do you want to go to the prayer meeting? It was just, well, why wouldn't I? Because things happen. You know, th stuff happens when I go there. I think that's true. Uh, I think that the other features we can see would be such things as a robust um, belief in the authority of scripture. And I think that the church at the moment in the West, particularly in the UK and, and uh, uh, Europe, we're under such pressure from secular and liberal um, theology, but secular worldviews. Uh, the, the, the pressure for us to cave in on very key biblical matters is, is there because it doesn't sound compatible with the culture we're living in. But if we're going to really be authentically biblical, we have to hold our ground and come what may. And we may as yet find that there are aspects of persecution and disadvantage that come to the church in this country. I pray not. But if it's a choice between do we compromise on the authority of scripture to fit in, or do we pay the price for having an authentic biblical gospel, mm. then we have to choose that. Uh, so the, the, the revival was fueled in a belief that Scripture is the authoritative word of God governing belief and practice of how we should live our lives. Mm. I think a bold proclamation of the gospel that Jesus, that we are fallen, you know, we are in Adam, we are uh, in need of redemption. Every person alive needs a savior. And Jesus is that savior, came to earth, died on a cross in our place, substitutionary atonement, mm. took our sins in his body on the cross and gave us as a free gift the righteousness that is his, the great divine exchange, as Luther called it, and that we can, to as many as receive him, he gives the power to be called, the right to be to call themselves children of God. Mm. Now, that, that simple gospel, articulated in whatever way, appropriately in the context, must be our relentless uh, vocabulary. And uh, it certainly was in any revival. It, the gospel becomes centre. Um, I remember hearing you say of the lowest of revival that the um, differences of churchmanship between ministers like Jock and Douglas Brown, they mm -hmm. almost get pushed to the side as you describe yes. them holding hands, weeping in yes. unity and delight. And it's not a unity that's manufactured, as you said in, in a video I watched by committee, but by what the Holy Spirit does because of the centrality of that simple gospel. And I think um, it's not just that, we, you know, it's not like we must keep this gospel central, like we must eat our vegetables. It's that we, this is our delight. And if this doesn't delight and thrill us, mm -hmm. then we don't have anything. I remember talking to someone else who's been a preacher for many years. And I said, you know, how did you, how did you keep preaching the same message week in, week out effectively when there's so many other messages in the culture? Mm -hmm. And he just said, I haven't got anything else. 
this is the only thing I've got. It's the gospel. Yeah. And it's not like there aren't other options, but this is the only thing that works and saves. So I can completely hear you. There's a need not just to preach it, but to love it and believe it and preach it to ourselves and realize this is this is the source of our delight and our strength, isn't it? Yes. And I, and I think one hopeful sign on the horizon that I see is, you know, when Paul said 1, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 3 and 4, he said, you know, as of first importance, Christ died for our sins, was buried, was raised, according to the scripture. Yeah, that's the first, that's the key thing, right? That's the, that's the big bedrock. Everything else after that really is secondary. That's the first importance. I think in, in the last of revival, that first importance thing enabled uh, brothers and sisters from lots of different church backgrounds who, dif- who differed on secondary matters, important but secondary matters, to come together around the first importance. And I, I do detect that there is an appetite across networks, denominations, spheres, whatever you call them, groupings, um, that people want to leave behind tribalism they want to leave behind their sectarian sort of little worlds and they want to reach out relationally and stand together in and for the gospel it, through friendship, but around the gospel. I think there is an appetite for that. And if there's one thing I think that might come out of this pandemic where everyone has been humbled, uh, then actually a, a humble reaching out brother to brother, sister to sister across those sort of lines I, th- could, I think could produce something quite magnificent. It's not going to be built on a platform. It's not going to be built on a statement. It's not going to be built on an agenda. It's going to come out of relationships that are knitted in heart because of the gospel. I think that could be something that comes out of this. Mm, I really liked um, what I heard you say also again, that uh, this isn't necessarily a matter of geography, but of relationships. Yes, of Relationships absolutely. across people. Um so, so I guess also what you're saying there is a is a culture rather than a meeting or a platform, and just as prayer becomes a culture rather than a meeting, and and I think maybe there's, you know, there's this challenge that with the pandemic we've not been able to go to many meetings, any meetings, you know, everything if you've wanted it has been online, but a lot of people have thought oh, I don't really want online, so I'm just not going to do any meetings, and um, what I guess I hear you saying is perhaps we've we've been very focused on the importance of the prayer meeting and that is very important we need to keep going to prayer meetings but a culture of prayerfulness is different perhaps from having lots of prayer meetings would you say that or what's the interplay between a culture of prayer and prayer meetings for the church that you have to go to well i think there's something about praying with other people that somehow produces results so so in 2 Corinthians 1.11, where Paul, it's the launching verse that we used for our Enough initiative, where when I read it, it's like I read it for the first time, and I thought, I've missed something here, I've not seen this before. Where Paul is talking about the extremity of difficulty he'd had in Asia, utterly despairing of life and ministry, so really this is tough, tough, tough. And he could have asked for anything. He could have said, send us some more team, send us some money. I need a holiday. I need a sabbatical. Can I, you know, can you, you know, give us some advice? Uh, We need some specialists to to really be able to crack this. He could have asked for anything and they'd have given it to him, whatever they had. But he Mm. said, you also must pray for us so that many will see the blessing granted in answer to the prayers of many. 
And when I saw that and read that, I thought, the prayers of many. He's actually saying the answer is locked up in how many people actually leverage in prayer for this request. And it's the only time I can find in the New Testament where the size of the meeting or the numbers of people involved are directly linked to the fruitfulness of the outcome. And yet we often put a lot of emphasis on church growth, on the size of your church, et cetera, et cetera, in terms of how fruitful it's going to be. I don't find any of that mm. in the New Testament at all. A church plant can be fruitful, even if it's only 40 people, and continue to then grow. It seems to me that the prayer meeting, the more people you've got in it, the stronger the leverage. Uh, so I do think there is a link between gathering people together to pray together and agree together concerning um, uh, uh, yeah, agreed requests. I think something happens uh, more so than if uh, it's not that God doesn't listen to individual prayers. Of course he does. Mm. But there is a dynamic that Paul he caught his attention. If it wasn't true, he would have said, look, I've got a prayer letter. Get it to Epaphras. He wrestles in prayer for people. I really mm. need Epaphras to pray for me. He didn't say that. He said, you also. He's writing to the whole church. This church, many people need to pray for me. Otherwise, I'm in trouble. So I think we have to learn from an apostolic appeal when he could have said anything. That's what he went for. So I think online prayer meetings, um, if there's only one meeting we do, let it be an online mm. prayer meeting. You know, let, it, let it be that. Wow, that's really helpful. I, and I think it's probably the, the need for people to realise that their their praying and their agreeing matters to the overall impact of the prayers and so therefore it actually matters that you come because it matters that you're going to add it's yeah. not just come and you know add your signature to the petition list that we're passing around god so that it will twist his arm a little bit more but it's a you know you are a, a, a child of god with authority as well so you get to add your authority to this prayer and so I, perhaps it's the challenge that we we often approach so much in life with what am i going to get out of this am i am i needing this right now if i'm not needing this i'm not really going to go or if it's an effort for me to go yeah. but when you realize there's a responsibility perhaps that my prayers really matter and they're going to make an impact um i, I don't think people realize the power of their simple prayer no more than a minute long as it was in the Rumble. no more than a minute long not big wordy weighty prayers i find people are afraid to go to prayer meetings so they don't know how to pray they're afraid they might be put in a group or a Zoom breakout room and think, oh, no, I might have to pray. What do I say? Well, I think you can cobble something together for a few seconds. And as long as it's asking God because you believe he can do it with a tiny grain of faith that you might not think is very much, use it. I mean, your, your prayer might be the tipping point between something happening and it not happening. Now, I believe in the sovereignty of God, but I also believe in the responsibility of man. There are things that don't happen because we don't pray. I'm convinced of that. Things, opportunities, situations, people's lives are not touched, not impacted, not affected, simply because we didn't bother to pray. Now, that might sound like a very Arminian statement, but I believe it's a biblical statement. There's no such thing as Calvinism or Arminianism in the Bible. There are just paradoxes that we have to hold together. God is sovereign, but he wants us to pray in numbers to see things that he has on his heart um ha happen 
That's why the Lord's Prayer is let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth. That's why he wants us to ask it. I think it's more serious. It's more serious than we realize and yet more achievable than we dare believe. Wow. Mike, that's so helpful and so challenging because, yeah, what, what, yeah, I almost don't, there's almost nothing else I kind of need to add or ask because I think there's just a need for us to, to hear that and try to receive that. Um, there are obviously hurdles that, that we put in our way that we feel to prayer. It's difficult. I'm tired. I don't want to go. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. Um, I, 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 am I going to get anything out of it? Are many people going to go, etc.? It's cold, it's dark. But there's so many excuses that we seem to make for ourselves because we don't realise. Almost like C.S. Lewis's famous often quoted thing about we're just too content making mud pies in a slum um, because we just can't imagine what it's like to go to the beach and, and make sandcastles. It's like, I don't really believe that my prayers make that much of a difference to God. Yeah. But I would suggest that those arguments in our mind are not flesh and blood arguments. Those are deliberate enemy demonic tactics fed into our thinking by the accuser of the brethren. When Jesus was in the wilderness, uh, Satan would say, is it not written? Yeah, he was trying to get at his inner motivations to stop him from doing the very things God knew, his father knew he needed to do. If you were the enemy and you knew that the greatest weapon against you was corporate prayer, what would you do? You would send messages down the line to say, oh, you're tired. Mm you're not going to make any difference. Oh, it's not going to, it's all too difficult. You've had a tough day. Other people will go, you're not very good at prayer anyway. You, you, other people will say, it doesn't make it, it doesn't work. I mean, we're just falling prey to the most obvious enemy tactic. And we think it's us. It's not us. It doesn't come from us. Why do we suddenly feel overwhelmed with tiredness when the thought of a prayer meeting comes? That's not a human thing. It's a war. This is a war. And I just don't think we realise we're in it. God, very good. Thank you. We've got to argue with ourselves and argue with him. Well, even if I am tired, I'm going anyway. Even if I fall asleep in the prayer meeting, I'm still here just to spite <laughs> you. <laughs> I love it. And, and, and I guess it's the, it's the interplay again and the importance of being grounded on the authority of the word of God as Jesus was. It's, it's written like these thoughts of mine don't really matter because it is written. It's a bit like, you know, people are obsessed and we talk a lot about our identity and self-esteem and self-image. Again, all of that, you could just say, it, it doesn't matter. It is written. I am in Christ. Mm. Therefore, all these things follow with response to our prayer life, perhaps as well, because I'm in Christ. <laughs> he has promised to answer yeah. my prayers. Exactly. I mean, I mean, if I tell you the honest truth, I'm not very good at prayer. I, I'm not very good at it. I often lose concentration. I often forget my train of thought. I often end up staring out the window for five minutes and thinking, what am I doing? I, I, I'm not an expert, but I'm convinced. I'm convinced from the scriptures that my little efforts given in faith to the great God, who's holy. I mean, it says in Romans 8, doesn't it? You don't know how to pray. Well, he agrees with us. You don't know. But the, Holy, but the Holy Spirit takes our prayers and with groans and sighs that cannot be uttered, does something with our incomplete, uh, faltering, stammering vocabulary. He does something with it so that when we offer it, it becomes a powerful crafted weapon by the time it reaches the sort of incense stage of heaven where it gets into God's nostrils and he smells it and he thinks, oh, that's a wonderful mm. prayer. But if we think, oh, I'm rubbish, 
there's much more going on than we realize and i guess in part because the, the essence of prayer is a is a humble disposition before god that recognizes i am not i need him and that is, is perhaps the the heart and the essence of why prayer is so beautiful to god because it's human beings that are vexed with pride and sin humbling themselves to say i am not i need you um, which i can understand you know so to speak in that way that that's what god wants from us is to be people who bow the knee and um and find our strength in him that way uh, and um i mean the last great revival so we're told on the uk soil was the the revival in the isle of lewis which famously started with a with two old ladies praying and uh, and requesting was it was it another douglas to come and uh, uh it was um duncan D- campbell, campbell yeah yeah duncan douglas maybe there's a pattern there um um, and actually i was just reading this past week that even in as late as 2002 or as recent as 2002 the sunday church attendance in the isle of lewis is still at 39 percent of the population which is huge Mm. and perhaps speaks of the the impact of the revival in the 40s that still in 2002 it's the most i think i was reading something saying that the isle of lewis is a a source of fascination to anthropologists in the uk because it is an outlier in in a lot of ways and far as the, the religious appetite of the community goes so we you know we meet up to talk about what we think is going to be revival and partly because we want to hear some inspiring stories that are going to motivate us but the motivation is always to prayer this is what prayer does this is what god wants to do in partnership with his people mm. are you wanting to be someone that partners with god in that way uh, is that something that you often come back to then when you study stories of revival it, it provokes in you an atmosphere of prayer well I, I my my complaint to god uh, is that i am 59 and i've never seen uh, anything other than the tide going out further and further so i'm wanting to say well you know i've heard of your fame as Habakkuk did, yeah, I've heard of your fame, uh, renew it in our day. Mm. So if Habakkuk prayed it, and he was, he, Habakkuk was one of these people who, who said what everyone else was thinking, but never dared say it. Uh, and I think sometimes we have to go to God and say, I'm not satisfied with this, because I've heard of your fame. It's not arrogance. It's like, well, I know who you are. I know what you can do. Renew it in our day. So I will be praying that for the rest of my life in whatever form it comes. Um, I trust that he will answer it before the end of my life. But even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't, I know that he will subsequent to my life. He, he will have the last word. God will have the last word. He will always fulfill that which is on, the, on his heart. And he will have um, a glorious church. Uh, from every tongue, tribe, and nation, and you know, in, as it says in Isaiah, that the, in the last days the mountain of the Lord will be chief among the mountains. The, the, the dark will get darker, the light will get lighter. There, there will be a visible, glorious, global church, I believe, that will, despite all the odds, emerge grow to, greater and greater through the through the centuries. I just want to be a, see a part of that in my own in my own context. Um, and nothing I've read persuades me that it isn't God's heart as well. I just think that the world we live, the, the, the culture we live in could persuade us. And even when you listen to many Christians talking very eloquently about all the reasons why God can't move in our day, uh, they can be quite persuasive. Um, who needs the devil? You know, you've got uh, people, to, <laughs> people telling you all the reasons why it's never going to happen again. 
you know, because we're, we're just we're just too far. It's post-Christian. Well, that never seemed to, that didn't trouble God with Nineveh, did it? They didn't even know their left hand from the right hand, didn't know anything. And Jonah turns up and says, repent. God, God says, repent. The city turned to God. I mean, so I'm not hugely impressed. And Jonah didn't even want to do it. No, course. exactly. It's <laughs> someone who didn't want to do it in a place where it shouldn't have happened through people who who shouldn't God shouldn't have even bothered with. Uh, and I think, well, um, I'm not hugely helped by all the well-crafted words of, uh, you know, experts who tell us why God won't do it again in the UK because we're too far gone. It's not going to happen. Well, we'll see. Yes. Wow. And perhaps exactly the sort of thing that God likes to do is to unsettle our plans to show us his. Realise in a year like 2020, you cannot plan at all because everything's changing and I'm I'm God. So you you just worry about praying and I'll work the plan out, um, which is wonderful. Mike, just as we close, is there anything else that's in your heart or mind that you wanted to share before we finish? Oh, I think you squeezed me dry, really. Uh... <laughs> There's not much in there to start with, but what there is has come out. I, I, I think, uh, yeah, I, th- I, I think we have to stick with the basics. Just stick with the basics. It's not complicated. Pray, share your faith, plant churches, win the lost, boom. What else? It, it, it's, 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 it, that's it. Hmm. And I, I just think let's let's let's. Uh, I don't want to be simplistic, but I do think that the the gospel is not intended to be a complex thing that requires a certain level of uh, um, either academic or business or strategic or uh, skill. The gospel is able to confound the wisest professor or be received by the, the most uneducated um, person. It, it, it is simple. And if we stick to basics, trust the authority of scripture, preach the gospel, look for the unity that Jesus prayed for, um, then we leave the outcomes to God. Amen. Mm. Oh, Amen. Oh, Thank you so much, Mike. Thank you for your time. Um, I feel like it'd be it'd be really appropriate for us to end with prayer. Would you mind just praying for us and sure. for revival yeah. as we go? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'd love to do that. Father, will you listen to our conversation, Lord? You 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 know what's in our hearts, Lord. But sometimes when we when we speak it out, it, it I don't know, it becomes fresh to us again, Lord. And I I I thank you for this call. I pray for everyone who ends up listening to this wherever it goes i do pray that there will be a fruit from this conversation lord i i'm not an expert lord but i do know what the bible says and i i pray that the power of your word and the presence of your holy spirit will rest upon every single person who listens to what we've been talking about i pray for a stirring of faith a stirring of desire i pray for a thirst and a hunger in many hundreds of people uh, who knows maybe even thousands who eventually listen to this i pray that you would begin to stir your church in the ways that only you can do and you'd prepare us you'd you'd stir us to pray you'd stir us not to believe the devil's lies when he says to us oh you're no good at praying you're not a very good christian you can't make any difference lord 
help us to, to just consign that nonsense to the bin and to just simply trust you with our faltering vocabulary and our very frail hearts and weak hearts at times and just to nevertheless present our requests to you knowing lord that that's that's your invitation to us so i pray for a move of prayer a corporate prayer move across your church i pray for a move of witness where we see words works and wonders beginning to pop up like popcorn all over the, mm. the nation where stories of people come to christ in the everyday life of everyday people uh, churches seeing prayer meetings being so well attended so powerful that it's the one meeting out of everything that people just don't want to miss lord these are our prayers mm. these are our requests and we ask you to use our simple contribution today to fuel the fires lord in jesus name amen amen do it again lord hope you enjoyed that conversation and found it as inspiring as I did. Well, in two weeks' time, I'm looking forward to bringing you a conversation I had with another one of our friends from the relational mission sphere of churches, that is the well-known conference speaker and church planter, Steph Liston, as we talk about all things to do with pastoral ministry and the shape of church in a post-pandemic world. Here's a clip from that conversation. We try to be transparent, appropriately transparent with our areas of struggle and weakness. Um, we invite um, questions, godly scrutiny, accountability, um, invite it, correction, because you, you, you are working against a whole load of presuppositions where if you don't do that, you will quickly be beyond reach, unfortunately. Be sure to check that out in two weeks time when it's available. Well, that's it for this week. Please do like, subscribe and share wherever you can so that more people can benefit from and enjoy the conversations that we're having together. God bless you. Stay well and keep pursuing Jesus with everything you've got. Bye-bye.